Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Cancer of unknown primary site, or CUP, is a heterogeneous group of cancers for which the anatomical site of origin remains unknown, even after detailed investigations. CUP accounts for 2 to 5% of all tumors, and the emergence of more sophisticated imaging, immunohistochemical testing, and molecular profiling tools has influenced our approach to its treatment. In the era of tailored therapeutic strategies, this situation presents both an opportunity and a challenge. On today's podcast, Dr. Sidney Schultz, an oncology pharmacist at Mayo Clinic, reviews recent literature regarding the utility of molecular profiling as a tool to guide cup treatment. So cancer of unknown primary is a heterogeneous group of cancers in which the anatomical site of origin is unable to be determined despite detailed investigation. The emergence of sophisticated imaging, molecular profiling tools, and immunohistochemical evaluations has greatly impacted our approach towards a more tailored treatment. And modern oncology increasingly stresses the personalization of treatment. And in this era of these new tailored approaches, the treatment for cancer of unknown primary presents as both a challenge, but also as an opportunity. So for our learning objectives this morning, we're going to identify the presentation, prognostic factors, and pathology that are associated with cancer of unknown primary. We will review historical treatment approaches. And lastly, discuss the role for use of molecular profiling to help us guide treatment. So cancer of unknown primary, which I will be referring to during the remainder of the presentation as CUP, they are histologically confirmed metastatic tumors whose primary site cannot be identified during pretreatment evaluation. And this evaluation includes a full um, history and physical examination, as well as laboratory testing and imaging. And the pathophysiologic basis behind why CUP occurs is still ambiguous, but one hypothesis theorizes that the primary tumors in CUP have a dominant metastatic phenotype. And in that setting, we may have very microscopic primary tumors that are simply too small to be identified via imaging, but due to that dominant metastatic phenotype, we may have macroscopic disseminated tumors that are large enough to be detected. And in general, cancers of unknown, unknown primary are considered to be aggressive metastatic malignancies that are characterized by early dissemination of disease and a short survival of just eight to 12 months. Epidemiologic studies have found that the average age of diagnosis for patients with CUP is 60 to 75 years with no difference in incidence between male and female gender. In 2021, it was estimated that 31,000 patients would be diagnosed with cancer of unknown primary, primary worldwide, and that accounts for two to 5% of all tumors. And so CUP does remain the sixth to eighth most common cancer diagnosed worldwide, and the third to fourth most common cause of cancer-related death. And surprisingly, even in 20 to 50% of patients, the primary tumor is not identified even after post-mortem examination, just due to how small they can be in size. The presentation for patients with CUP varies vastly, but the majority of patients will present with symptoms that are related to where their sites of metastases are located. 
So for example, if you have a patient that has predominantly nodal involvement, they may present with severe lymphadenopathy. And these symptoms typically lead to imaging where the masses are then identified incidentally. Greater than 50% of patients with CUP will present with multiple sites of involvement. And the most common sites here include the lung, liver, bone, and lymph node, where patients can further be um, can further be classified as to whether or not they have primarily visceral disease, which would include that lung, liver, even potentially brain involvement, or having predominantly bone involvement or predominantly nodal disease. And these characteristics will be important when we dive into the literature portion of the presentation later on. About 20% of patients with CUP will present with more favorable prognostic factors. And that includes having a single small resectable tumor or having a poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinoma. And for the rest of the favorable prognostic factors that will be listed, you'll start to notice a theme where the patients present with a constellation of symptoms, laboratory values, or imaging results that are highly suggestive of one primary site in certain. And so, for example, if patients were to present with poorly differentiated carcinoma with midline nodal distribution, that typically affects younger men and would be highly suggestive of a germ cell tumor. Squamous cell involving cervical lymph nodes would be highly suggestive of a head and neck primary. Women with papillary adenocarcinoma of the peritoneal cavity would most likely have an underlying gynecologic malignancy. Women with adenocarcinoma involving only axillary lymph nodes would most likely have breast cancer. And then finally, men who present with blastic bone metastases and an elevated prostate-specific antigen would most likely have prostate cancer. And for all of these patients with the favorable prognostic factors listed, because their presentation is so highly suggestive of the primary site, we would then tailor their treatment to that site-specific therapy rather than having to utilize an empiric approach, as this leads to increased overall response rates and lengthened survival. But unfortunately, 80% of patients with CUP present with our unfavorable prognostic factors. And this includes adenocarcinomas and undifferentiated carcinomas. And other unfavorable factors include male gender, older age of 65 years or older, having a poor performance status, which is defined here as an ECOG performance status of two or greater, having multiple comorbidities, multiple organs involved, where specifically the lung, liver, and bone are included, non-papillary or malignant ascites, and then finally having peritoneal or cerebral metastases. And for any of these patients, their presentation um, is vague in nature and not very indicative of a certain primary site. And so instead of being able to employ site-specific therapy, we are left with having to utilize our empiric cytotoxic chemotherapy regimens, but the survival benefit for using this approach remains questionable. And so this brings us to our first poll everywhere question. So you can pull out your smartphone, tablet, or laptop. And the question here is which of the following is true regarding cancer of unknown primary? Option A states that the brain is a common site of metastases. B, adenocarcinoma is a favorable prognostic factor. C, neuroendocrine carcinoma is a favorable prognostic factor. Or option D, female gender is an unfavorable prognostic factor. All right, seeing a good number of answers coming through, and I am agreeing with the majority of responders who are choosing C as the correct answer here. So option A is incorrect. The brain is not one of our common sites of metastases. Our common sites include lung, liver, bone, and lymph node. 
Adenocarcinoma in general is considered to be an unfavorable prognostic factor unless it was one of those um, very specific examples, such as the women with adeno that have only axillary lymph node involvement, but in general is considered to be a poor prognostic factor. Neuroendocrine carcinoma is the correct answer here that is favorable. And then finally, it's actually male gender that would be an unfavorable prognostic factor. So to provide a little bit of context for how the treatment of cancer of unknown primary has evolved throughout the decades, our first definition of cancer of unknown primary came about in the early 1980s and was based on the results of imaging alone to help guide um, our treatment options. In the 1990s, we on one hand had an improvement in our imaging, but we also had large validated immunohistochemical or IHC panels that were able to help us find biomarkers that could assess a potential tissue of origin. And these tissue of origin molecular profiling assays really hit the market in the early 2000s and provided us um, with the potential to provide more site-specific therapy for our patients. And finally, in present time, we are continuing to evolve tailored therapy models, again, with our primary goal of being able to provide the most site-specific therapy for our patients to improve overall survival. And so if a patient were to present and you're concerned for cancer of unknown primary, the following workup process will begin. The history and physical examination will include a full workup, including breast, genitourinary, rectal, and pelvic examination, really taking into account any past history of cancer, including familial history, any past biopsies or lesions removed. Laboratory studies here are going to be pretty comprehensive, including a CBC, CMP, liver function tests, potentially even an LDH or urinalysis if indicated. Our imaging here, so a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis is the standard of care for all patients. And then any other imaging should be utilized in a directed fashion. So for example, if we have a female who's presenting and we're concerned for an underlying breast cancer, then we may want to evaluate with a breast MRI. Other more invasive strategies such as endoscopies and bronchoscopies used to be the standard of care, but should now really only be utilized for our patients who are symptomatic. Finally, a PET scan has not been evaluated prospectively, but could be an option um, and is specifically helpful if you have patients who present with predominantly bone involvement. But despite all of this imaging available to us, there are still many cancers of unknown primary that are simply too small to be detected. And so that brings us to the next step of our workup process, which is the use of immunohistochemical testing or IHC testing. And so IHC testing is a method used to detect the presence and level of certain cellular proteins. And so for this step, a, an adequate biopsy of the tumor um, is crucial. And IHC testing is able to identify three main things. First, cell lineage markers. Second, organ tumor markers. And thirdly, cytokeratin markers. So when looking at our cell lineage markers, IHC testing is able to detect the following markers that can help identify whether the tumor is arising from carcinoma, squamous cell, melanoma, lymphoma, or germ cell. So for example, if we have a tumor that is expressing pan-keratin, that would be indicative of carcinoma. And if we had a tumor that was expressing CD20 as a surface marker, that would be indicative of having lymphoma. For our organ tumor markers, this is certainly not an all-encompassing list, but to list a couple um, examples, if a tumor was expressing estrogen or progesterone receptors, that would be indicative of breast or endometrial cancer. And then if a tumor was expressing chromogranin or synaptophysin, that would be indicative of a neuroendocrine carcinoma. 
Lastly, we have our cytokeratin markers. So cytokeratins are intermediate filaments specific to the epithelial cells within human tissue. And there are 20 different subunits in total, where today we'll just focus on subunits 7 and 20. And the staining patterns of these two subunits can help us identify the tissue of origin or at least narrow down our options for us. And one, one that I want to specifically mention is if a tumor were to stain negative for cytokeratin 7, but positive for cytokeratin 20, where this would be indicative of either having colorectal or Merkel cell. And with how uncommon Merkel cell is in comparison to colorectal cancer, this staining pattern would be highly indicative of the patient having colorectal cancer. And so really these three um, tools from IHC testing are all just things we can add to our toolbox to potentially start to piece together which primary site would fit our patient presentation the best. But despite these four workup processes that we've already gone through, this only identifies the primary site in 30 to 40% of patients. And that's, that leaves 60 to 70% of patients where we're left still having pretty much no idea where the primary site of cancer is arising from. And so how do we go about treating these patients? Well, the NCCN guidelines recommend that we utilize the histologic subtype. So upon biopsy results, cancer of unknown primary can be split into four main histologic subtypes where well or moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma make up the majority of 60% of patients, poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma makes up 30% of the population, undifferentiated carcinoma makes up another 5%, and then finally squamous cell making up our last 5%. In rare cases, we can have patients presenting with those neuroendocrine histology types, and even with mixed histology, such as adenosquamous, but those are quite rare and are not included in the overall population depiction here. And so again, based on those results, the NCCN guidelines currently have recommended preferred regimens. And so for patients who are found to have adenocarcinoma, regardless of how well or poorly differentiated, there are currently five regimens that are preferred. And that includes paclitaxel plus carboplatin, gemcitabine plus cisplatin, capox, which is a combination of capecitabine with oxaliplatin, and then two of our fluorouracil combinations. So fulfox, which is fluorouracil, leucovorin, and oxaliplatin, and then fulfiri, which is fluorouracil, leucovorin, and irenotecan. And then for patients who present with squamous cell, there are just two regimens included, which is the paclitaxel carboplatin and fulfox keeping in mind that squamous cell really only makes up 5% of our population here and is a favorable prognostic factor. So typically these patients respond a little bit better than the patients who have adenocarcinoma. And before we dive into these treatment regimens in a little bit more detail, I do want to provide a very general overview of mechanistically how these chemotherapy agents are exerting their mechanism of action. And so chemotherapy agents can be classified based on where they exert their primary effect in relation to the cell cycle, which is depicted here on the slide. So the cell cycle is a four-phase process where the cell is increasing in size during our gap one phase. It's replicating its DNA during our synthesis or S phase, preparing for division in our gap two or G2 phase, and then finally undergoing mitosis during our M phase. And so calling out um, some of our chemotherapy agents are anti-metabolites, which include capecitabine, fluorouracil, and gemcitabine, exert their action specifically during that synthesis phase, so during DNA replication. The topoisomerase 1 inhibitors, which include irenotecan and topotecan, exert their action oh, during the gap 2 and mitosis phase. 
The toporisomerase 2 inhibitor, which is a toposide, exerts its action during that GAP1 phase. And then finally, we have two classes of um, agents, the taxanes, which include paclitaxel and Darvinka alkaloids, such as vincristine, that exert their action during that cell division or mitosis phase. We also have um, a few classes of chemotherapy that are considered to be non-cell cycle specific, and those include our alkylating agents, our platinum analogs, such as carboplatin, cisplatin, and oxaliplatin, our anti-tumor antibiotics, and our anthracyclines. And then I also want to review the response criteria that we'll be applying to our primary literature today, as it is a little bit unique um, when looking at solid tumors. So overall survival is still certainly going to be the gold standard, but you'll also see the following um, response rates that are listed as efficacy outpoints as well. And so here our goal is for patients to, to achieve a complete response or a CR. And this is defined as the disappearance of all target lesions. Patients can also have a partial response, which is defined as at least 30% decrease in the sum of the longest diameter of the target lesion compared to baseline. And oftentimes you'll see an overall response rate that's reported, and that simply combines patients who have a complete response with those who have a partial response. Patients can also have progressive disease, which is defined as at least a 20% increase in the sum of that longest diameter of the target lesion compared to baseline, or it can be defined as the appearance of one or more new lesions. And then lastly, we have what's referred to as stable disease. And this is pretty vague in definition, where it's either not meeting the criteria for a partial response, but also not meeting criteria for progressive disease. And this can be a little bit misleading when it's reported, because on one hand, you can have a tumor that is increasing in size, just not up to 20%, but it also means that that tumor could be decreasing in size. And so starting with the first regimen that I want to dive into a little bit further, the combination of paclitaxel plus carboplatin dates all the way back to the year 2000, when it was administered to 77 patients with treatment naive cup. And the regimen was given every 21 days for a maximum of eight cycles. And in this study, they did subdivide the patients into three subgroups based on where their sites of metastases were located. And so 43% of patients in this trial had visceral metastases with the lung and liver being the most common. 30% of patients had primarily nodal or pleural disease. And then the remaining 27% of patients had peritoneal carcinomatosis. The overall response rate that they found for the 77 patients in whole was 38.7%. However, they did notice a bit of a disparity when they looked at the overall response rates for each of those subgroups um, in individual. So for example, patients with a nodal or pleural disease had a response rate of 47.8%. However, the patients that had visceral metastases had a response rate of just 15.1% with a median overall survival of only 10 months. And so this regimen does remain in our treatment algorithm for both adenocarcinoma and squamous cell histology subtypes. However, um, the limited benefit that we saw in some of our patient subsets really led investigators to attempt to add agents on to this paclitaxel carboplatin backbone in the attempts of improving overall response rate and lengthening survival. And so in 2009, researchers evaluated that paclitaxel carboplatin arm, but added bevacizumab and erlotinib to it. 
And so targeting vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, with bevacizumab, and targeting epidermal growth factor receptor, or EGFR, with erlotinib, was a strategy that had already improved overall response rates and survival in many of our solid tumors in the early to late 2000s, including colon cancer, lung cancer, and pancreatic cancer. And so this seemed like an optimal target for us to try to apply for patients with CUF. And here, the quadruplet regimen was administered for a total of four cycles, where then the paclitaxel and carboplatin were discontinued, and the bevacizumab and erlotinib were continued as a maintenance approach. Overall, we had 53% of patients who had some type of response, with 8% of those being a complete response and 45% being a partial response. 30% of patients had stable disease, and our remaining 7% of patients had progressive disease. And our overall survival here was a median of 12.7 months for the entire patient population. Unfortunately, in this trial, um, they did report that greater than 50% of patients did have multiple sites of metastases, but they did not define the exact location of those sites. And so we're unable to determine how many of the patients in this trial had those visceral metastases. And while our overall survival may at first you know, seem like it's higher than our previous trial, the addition of these two agents did not come without toxicity. Primarily, we had increase in the incidence of GI toxicity in the form of diarrhea, and we had dermatologic toxicity and the incidence of rash. And so for all of those reasons, um, this strategy has not been adopted by any of the guidelines. Most recently, in 2021, we had published results from the phase two PASSIT CUP trial, which again evaluated that paclitaxel plus carboplatin treatment regimen. It was administered for six cycles to 150 patients with newly diagnosed CUP that had not been treated. And 100% of the patients that they enrolled had unfavorable prognostic factors with only having the adenocarcinoma or undifferentiated histology types. And here, Patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion, as long as they had stable or responding disease to those six cycles of chemotherapy. And they were randomized to either receive cetuximab maintenance, which is, which is another one of our epidermal growth factor receptor or EGFR inhibitors, or no maintenance strategy at all. Response rates were 22% for patients who received cetuximab versus 15% for those who received no maintenance at all. And overall survival was just eight months versus 7.4 months, which was not statistically significant. And you may be wondering, why are the response rates so much lower in this trial than what we saw previously? And I think the main reason was just the inclusivity of those patients with unfavorable prognostic factors. Many of the patients here had three or more sites of metastases, often having visceral and bone involvement. But alas, um, this treatment strategy did not prolong our survival nor improve um, our response rates and therefore has not been included in our treatment algorithms. To kind of shift gears back to our gemcitabine-based regimen, gemcitabine plus cisplatin is another one of our regimens that is a preferred strategy specifically for patients with adenocarcinoma, but is not included for patients with squamous cell. And this was evaluated in 23 patients with treatment-naive CUP, where here the majority of patients had an ECOG performance status of two or three, so they were really targeting those more frail patients. And so our overall response rate was 30%, where 13% were complete and 17% were partial. We had 35% of patients with stable disease, but another 35% of patients who had progressive disease. And overall survival here was reported as a median of 10 months. 
And while these results, again, are not overly exciting, um, this is included in the, red, in the NCCN guidelines, most likely due to the favorable toxicity profile that was evaluated. Specifically, they saw low rates of myelosuppression and low rates of febrile neutropenia. And so similarly to the, to the strategy that was applied to the paclitaxel carboplatin regimen, investigators again have attempted to add agents onto this backbone as well. And so in 2003, we saw gemcitabine plus cisplatin combined with a toposide, and it was given for a total of eight cycles in 30 patients, again with treatment naive cup. And in this trial, 70% of patients had three or more sites of metastases, where 30% had bone involvement, 20% with liver involvement, and 10% with brain metastases, which is quite uncommon. Typically, having brain involvement was an exclusion criteria for many of our previous trials. And here, we saw overall response rate of 37%, stable disease in 23%, and progressive disease in 40%. And our overall survival was just a mere 7.2 months, most likely due to the 10% that had brain involvement and other unfavorable prognostic factors. And here, the addition of a toposide to that gemcitabine plus cisplatin backbone really increased our toxicity profile. 60% of patients experienced grade three or four neutropenia, 27% experienced febrile neutropenia, where most often that required hospitalization, and 23% of patients had nausea or vomiting. And so for this main reason, this treatment strategy, again, is not included in our guidelines. The last regimen I want to discuss for our empiric chemotherapy is taking that carboplatin paclitaxel backbone and adding the gemcitabine to that. And so this treatment regimen, again, was given every 21 days for four cycles to 121 patients with newly diagnosed cancer of unknown primary. And this trial, again, excluded any patient with, with um, good prognostic factors. So any patients who completed at least two cycles of that triplet regimen were assessed for response. And if at that time they were deemed to have stable or responding disease, they were then placed on a weekly paclitaxel maintenance strategy. So the paclitaxel was administered weekly for six weeks with two weeks off to make an eight week course. And that eight week course was repeated three times. And so a total of 48 of the 121 patients did continue on to that paclitaxel maintenance strategy. The response rates included here are from when patients were evaluated just after two cycles of the triplet regimen, so prior to starting maintenance. And they found an overall response rate of 25%, stable disease in 54%, and progressive disease in 21%. And interestingly enough, investigators noted that no additional responses were seen once patients were moved on to that maintenance strategy. And in addition to the lack of um, efficacy that we saw with the paclitaxel weekly maintenance, there was also an increase in toxicity, specifically calling out fatigue, myelosuppression, and peripheral neuropathy. And so again, this strategy is also not included in our treatment algorithm. Lastly, if you remember, there were three fluoropyrimidine regimens that are included in the NCCN algorithm, and that includes KFOX, FULFOX, and FULFIRI. And here, KFOX is the only one of these three trials that has actually been studied in patients with CUP, and it was associated with a response rate of just 11% and an overall survival of seven months. For FULFOX and FULFIRI, their application for patients with CUP is all extrapolated from their disease-specific tumor trials, for metastatic colorectal, biliary tract, pancreatic, gastric, and esophageal cancer. 
One benefit that the guidelines call out is that full FOX of all these regimens can safely be concurrently used with radiation therapy if that is a modality that we are wanting to employ for our patient. So to kind of summarize um, the select trials that we reviewed for our empiric chemotherapy regimens, the ones in bold here are the two only, the only two listed that are still included in our NCCN guidelines. And so you can tell um, that the attempt to add targeted therapy empirically or to even utilize our triplet regimens has really not led to an improvement in overall response rates nor in survival. And with survival rates as low as seven months and overall response rates as low as 15 to 20%, there's a clear need for us to be able um, to provide better options for these patients. And that brings us to our next poll everywhere question. And so the question here is which empiric chemotherapy regimen demonstrated poor activity in patients with visceral metastases compared to those with nodal metastases? And our answer options include carboplatin plus paclitaxel, gemcitabine plus cisplatin, carboplatin plus paclitaxel plus cetuximab, or D, which is Fulfox. Okay, seeing a good number of answers coming through, a little bit of disagreement in the room between A and C. Um, the correct answer here is actually A, carboplatin plus paclitaxel. So that was that first regimen that we discussed where they divided patients into those subgroups and the patients with visceral disease had response rate of just 15% compared to 48 to 60% for the other subgroups that were analyzed. Um, option C is incorrect. Um, you can argue that patients didn't respond very well to that therapy, and many of them had visceral disease, but they didn't do any subgroup analysis to say that the patients with visceral disease responded worse than patients with nodal disease. And so at this point in our workup process, we have done our history and physical exam. We have laboratory studies, imaging, IHC testing, and histology all available to us. But we're seeing response rates that are just 15, maybe 20, maybe 30%, and survival ranging from 7 to 12 months on average. And so there's clear need for us to be able to add something to this workup process in an attempt to provide better therapy for patients. And that's where the use of molecular profiling comes in. So there are two main applications for molecular profiling that I want to discuss, and that first includes the use of gene expression profiling, or GEP, to help us determine site-specific tissue of origin to then guide site-specific therapy. The second application of molecular profiling is the use of next-generation sequencing, or NGS, and that can identify genomic aberrations that can then be targeted therapeutically. So starting with the utility of GEP, or gene expression profiling, a prospective trial was published evaluating the use of this tool to predict tissue origin in patients with cancer of unknown primary. They had a total of 252 tumor biopsies that were evaluated with a 92 gene PCR test. And of those 252, 247 had a tissue of origin that was able to be predicted. And for the patients who had a tissue of origin predicted, instead of receiving that empiric chemotherapy that we previously discussed, they instead were placed on site-specific therapy. And the most common sites of origin that were um, identified in this trial were biliary tract, colorectal cancer, and lung cancer. When looking at survival outcomes for the patients that had the tissue of origin identified, the overall median survival for the entire population was 12.5 months, which does kind of line up with what we saw with empiric chemotherapy. However, for patients who were identified to have non-small cell lung cancer or ovarian cancer as their primary, 
we saw extended survivals of 15.9 months and 29.6 months. And this evidence further strengthens the data that GEP can be helpful in identifying that tissue of origin and that providing site-specific therapy can potentially improve our overall survival. However, keeping in mind that this was not randomized, it was not um, in comparison to patients receiving empiric chemotherapy, um, so prospective data is cer certainly needed to see if this site-specific treatment would actually outperform the empiric. Switching gears back to the utility of next-generation sequencing, so driver mutations can confer a selective growth advantage within our tumors, and typical tumors can have anywhere from two to eight driver mutations on average. And there are two main classes of genes that can affect cancer, and that includes our tumor suppressor genes and our oncogenes. So tumor suppressor genes make proteins that act like breaks within the cell, and when they're turned on, they actually prevent the cell from being able to divide. If a tumor suppressor gene were to lose its activity or become mutated, then the cell would be able to divide uncontrollably, leading to the um, development of cancer. Some of our most common tumor suppressor genes include TP53, RB1, ATM, and P10. Our oncogenes actually function quite differently. So proto-oncogenes play important roles in controlling cell division and cell death. However, in this case, if a proto-oncogene becomes mutated, it can actually become hypermutated, leading to the appearance of uncontrolled cell division and thus leading to cancer. And so some examples of our oncogenes include BRAF, EGFR, KRAS, and MET. And when comparing these two as potential therapeutic targets with medications, we don't currently have any FDA-approved medications for tumor suppressor genes. However, we do for many of our oncogenes. And that's simply because if you think about mechanistically how these work, it's much easier for us to administer a medication to inhibit a pathway or turn something off than it is for us to, to administer a medication to try to activate or turn a pathway on. And so for that reason, the oncogenes are much easier for us to target therapeutically. And so what's the utility of having this information available to us? A retrospective study of 200 patients with cancer of unknown primary that all had next generation sequencing performed found that 192 or 96% of these tissues had at least one alteration identified. Unfortunately, majority of these um, alterations were in TP53 and P10, which are two of our tumor suppressor genes, but they did find 26 alterations that were deemed to be targetable with medications that are already approved on the market. And that included six tissues that had an EGFR mutation, 11 that had a BRAF mutation, six that had an ERBB2, and two that had that ALK fusion that was targetable. And so again, this is retrospective in nature. None of these patients were actually administered these medications. So we currently lack prospective data to prove that administering these agents would outperform empiric chemotherapy. And that's where we have the Capisco trial. This trial is an ongoing international multi-center trial to answer that exact question. So they take patients with treatment naive cup that all had next generation sequencing performed. All patients received upline therapy with three cycles of chemotherapy, and that could either be carboplatin plus paclitaxel, gemcitabine plus carboplatin, or gemcitabine plus cisplatin. And after the three cycles of initial chemotherapy, patients were then randomized to either receive molecularly guided therapy or to continue with three additional cycles of the platinum-based chemotherapy. And so here, for patients who received molecularly guided therapy, if they had an NTREC or ROS1 mutation, then they would receive entrectinib. 
if they had an EGFR mutation, they would receive combination of bevacizumab plus erlotinib. ERBB2 or 3 mutations received trastuzumab plus pertuzumab in conjunction with chemotherapy. Those with a PTCH1 or ESMO mutation received bismotigib. A BRAF V600 received vemurafenib plus cobimetinib. A PIK3CA or P10 mutation received apatacertib plus paclitaxel. BRCA1 or 2 mutations received olaparib. And then finally, any tumors that were deemed to be microsatellite instability high would receive immunotherapy with atezolizumab. And all of these agents um, are currently on the market for other solid tumors that have these targetable mutations. It's just that this is the first trial that will be specifically applying their utility to patients with CUP. And as I mentioned on the previous slide, those with microsatellite instability or mismatch repair can also be an important test that we're able to achieve through genetic analysis. So mismatch repair or MMR, DNA mismatch repair enzymes correct errors that occur during DNA replication. And the more errors we have, um, the more microsatellite fragments that can occur. And so this is actually evaluated via our IHC testing where microsatellite instability can be evaluated via next generation sequencing or those genetic analyses. And so here they evaluate the expression of four genes and that includes MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2. And a tumor is deemed to be proficient or have PMR, PMMR status if all four of these genes are appropriately expressed and then is deficient or DMMR if there is loss of at least one of those genes. And then we also have microsatellite instability, which is evaluated via genetic analysis. And that's indicative of a hypermutated phenotype and consists of insertion or deletion alterations. And here we can have three different um, statuses reported in our genetic analysis where tumors can either be microsatellite stable, microsatellite low, or microsatellite high. And here, deficient MMR is biologically equivalent to tumors being deemed MSI high. And so you may see in literature these terms being used interchangeably, but the way that they are evaluated is different. And so why do we need to know if a tumor has deficient MMR or MSI high status? Because it allows us to potentially use immunotherapy. And so currently we have pembrolizumab and distarlimab, which are two of our anti-PD-1 um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. And they've both been evaluated in pretty large trials with 233 and 209 patients. So pembrolizumab was evaluated, evaluated in the Keynote 158, which looked at any solid tumor type that was found to be MSI high or deficient MMR. And that could include gastric, endometrial, and pancreatic as the most common tumor types included. And they found an overall response rate of 34% and a median survival of 24 months. Distarlimab was evaluated most recently in the Garnet trial, again, in patients with deficient MMR status, and most common tumor types included were endometrial and gastrointestinal, and they found a response rate of 42% and a median survival of 35 months. And so these two are important to know as they both now have FDA indica indications that are considered to be tumor agnostic. So regardless of the solid tumor type, if we find that the tumor is deficient in MMR or high in microsatellite instability, then these are both approved in the second line setting for these patients. In retrospective analysis, I do want to mention that only 1.8% of tumors that are from CUP are MSI high or DMMR, but if we were to find this, again, it's a great treatment option that we can employ. 
And so that does bring us to our final poll everywhere question. Um, so patient AK has cancer of unknown primary with metastatic spread to the liver, lungs, and peritoneum. The patient progressed after six cycles of paclitaxel plus carboplatin, and a liver biopsy at that point was sent for next generation sequencing and was found to be MSI high. So which of the following treatments at this point would be most appropriate? Perfect, I am definitely agreeing with the audience here. The use of pembrolizumab or our immune checkpoint inhibitor based on the results from that Keynote 158 trial that we just recently discussed. So, so, so specifically making sure that our tumor is found to be MSI high, and this is approved in the second line setting, which does apply to this patient. And so in conclusion, for the treatment of cancer of unknown primary, it remains quite difficult to treat. You can see with the empiric chemotherapy strategies that we are still utilizing that date all the way back to the 2000s, we see low response rates and short median survivals. Therefore, site-specific therapy must be considered in order to improve response rates and overall survival. The recent development of our molecular profiling assays to aid in the identification of tissue of origin certainly raises questions about the future utility of our empiric chemotherapy. But until we have published prospective data, specifically from that Capisco trial, it's going to be difficult for us to actually be able to apply our next generation sequencing and molecular profiling universally for patients with CUP. However, in retrospective reviews, these processes have led to accurate prediction of primary site in upwards of 85 to 90%, which certainly beats the 30 to 40% that we have seen historically. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.